Have you ever had someone try to sell you something you really didn't want to buy? Maybe you're at the store and you're looking at cell phone cases and somebody runs up and they're like, hey, would you like a satellite TV? You know, I can give you the special deal on DirecTV. Or you're looking over there at the televisions and someone comes up and says, who's your cell phone provider? You want to switch to Sprint? You're like, I want to buy a TV. That's why I'm looking at those. I don't want to buy what you're selling. Um, a few years ago, while I was in Tennessee at a church, we had a new family come in the church, and they started handing out invitations to a July 4th party at their house. And I thought, well, it's in the morning. I'm not doing something to that evening with my family. I'll go. It's a good way to connect with a new family. And so I went over to their house and ate their food and watched kids run around with sparklers. And I was just at the point where I was getting ready to get up and leave. And uh, the husband of the house, he came to me and said, Alex, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. I'm like, okay. So we went inside the house, and he starts going down into the basement. I'm like, I don't know this guy that well. I don't want to go down in some strange basement. But I followed him down to the basement. And once I got down there, most of the other adults from the party were already down there. I'm like, this is kind of weird. And he had a projector set up and a big screen. And he goes, I want to share with you an exciting business opportunity about how you can invest in a timeshare in Florida. And... <laughs> This groan just escaped my lips, you know? I was like, oh, no. And so I asked the question I ask everybody when they try to sell me something. Is this a pyramid scheme? And he assured me it was not, but the next slide was a giant triangle. <laughs> if you have a giant triangle in your presentation, it's a pyramid scheme, okay? That's just a given. Um, and so anyways, I sat through about 45 minutes of this, and it was very unpleasant. And I don't think any of us enjoy when people try to sell us something, especially something we don't want. And anytime somebody's selling something, right, we try to maximize the positives and minimize the unpleasant aspects. And I see myself doing this. I'm starting a church over in the Bryn Mawr, Ardmore area, and uh, church plants need people or they fail. And so as I'm trying to recruit people in the community to come in and be part of the church plant, um, I find myself many times doing this. I'm talking about the, the positives of the church plant, and I kind of gloss over the more negative or unpleasant aspects of it. I tell people, it's exciting. It's something new. You're coming in at the ground floor. We can do anything. And I don't tell them things like, well, we have no place to, uh, no building, no people, no money. You know, I don't tell them those things until after they get uh, really connected in. And I think we do this same thing sometimes with Jesus when we're talking about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, about the gospel. I think sometimes we try to sell Jesus, and when we do that, we maximize certain parts of the gospel and we misrepresent the Christian faith. We talk about the benefits, but many times we're not honest about what a relationship with Jesus Christ requires. And I think people today value honesty and authenticity, and they want to know what they're getting themselves into. And it's interesting that Jesus, when he talked to people, he never tried to sell himself. He was always very uh, blunt and honest about what it meant to follow him. And so in Matthew 16, we're going to look at one of these times where he's just real honest and blunt about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And then he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall it uh, profit a man to, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have communicated who you are and what you've done to rescue humanity um, from themselves. God, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to present your word. And Lord, I pray that it is your words that are spoken this morning, that it's your name that's lifted up this morning. Lord, if there's something that I'd like to say or like to focus on that you don't want said, Lord, I pray that you take that from my mind. And Lord, that you'll give me the words to speak, that we might see lives transformed by the power of who you are and the beauty of the gospel. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus would. Amen. The first thing I want to look at here is just the cost Jesus tells us is associated with following him. In verse 21, he talks about how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. The Christian life is not an easy life. That's a big spoiler, right? It's not an easy life. I believe it's the only true path to God, uh, but it's not an easy life. In fact, if the will of God has led Jesus Christ to the cross, we should expect the will of God to lead us to do some hard things for the spiritual good of other people. If we're following Jesus and Jesus went to the cross, uh, it's going to make sense that at times he's going to lead us into hard things. Right before this in this passage, Jesus' disciples have finally recognized him for who he is. They said, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And so he shares with them now this plan um, about what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to uh, rise again on the third day. And this is where Peter jumps in and he's like, stop talking like that. Don't say these things. Don't talk like this. And it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid. I was always that real pessimistic kid, the kid who probably needed counseling, but his parents never paid for it. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have a headache and I'd go, it's probably a parasitic brain worm. You know, or I'd stub my toe, and I'm like, it's going to turn into gout and get infected and have to be amputated. And my mom's like, stop talking like this. You know, be positive. Don't be negative all the time. Um, but, you know, positive thinking and talking positive has some strengths in our world. But positive thinking doesn't change the reality of the Christian life not being about comfort, but primarily being about sacrifice. In fact, Jesus didn't die to make us comfortable Ultimately, Jesus Christ died to make a spiritually dangerous and an enemy-controlled world. Now, the disciples here had false expectations about what the Messiah was going to be like and what he was going to do. And they had these false expectations because of what the religious leaders had taught over generations. Their idea of a Messiah was a military Messiah who was going to come in, overthrow the foreign nations, set Israel free, advance Israel as the um, primary country in the world. And religious leaders for generations had taken texts out of the Old Testament, glossing over texts about the suffering and the sacrifices that the Messiah would go through and focusing on the Messiah's trumpet, uh, triumphs. And so what they ended up doing was they read what they wanted about the Messiah and they ignored or glossed over the passages that they didn't like or they thought might provoke controversy or might not be pleasant. 
And I think even today, many of us read the Bible the same way. We focus in on the passages that we really like, passages about being blessed by God. Everybody loves being blessed by God or God providing for our needs. And we dismiss or ignore passages that talk about denying ourselves or taking up our cross or suffering with Jesus. Um, and I think many times there's pastors and preachers who present Jesus as a path to an abundant life of wealth and health and popularity. And I do believe the Christian life is a blessed life. I've experienced that, but I think many times we have a misunderstanding about what that word blessing means. See, when we hear blessing, most of us in our modern Western setting think wealth, health, popularity. God's going to bless me. And when we have those things in our life, we're like, oh, God's just really blessing me. But when God talks about blessing, he's talking about allowing us to more fully and freely experience him. That's the blessing that God wants to bring into our lives. Many times I think that we think about money, health, or popularity because those have become our gods. And that's what we assume as a blessing because those have become our idols and what we want. Um, it's interesting here. The next thing is Jesus really criticizes Peter. So he just went from praising him in the last passage. If you were here last week, he says, oh, blessed are you, Peter. The Holy Spirit has revealed to you that I am Jesus. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. And now this week he calls him Satan. He calls him the devil. That's a pretty big contrast there. You know, he goes from one paragraph before praising him and now calling him Satan. And when he's calling him Satan here, when he says, get behind me, Satan, he's not implying that Peter was possessed or that Peter was secretly the devil the whole time. And it's like Mission Impossible. And he pulls off a rubber mask and he's like, it was the devil the whole time. You thought it was Peter. That's not what's going on here. What he's saying is Peter is opposing the work of God. The word devil or Satan means adversary, one who stands in the way of. And Satan stands in the way of what God wants to do. And what Jesus was saying is, Peter, right now, you are looking more like Satan than you are like a follower of me. You're standing in the way of what I want to accomplish. I think many times the devil doesn't have to work very hard because church people are, are opposing the work of Jesus, so he doesn't have to. Jesus said that his disciples were focused on things of man rather than things of God. And so ultimately their worldly desires, their desires for worldly success rather than spiritual success, put them in direct opposition to what Jesus wanted to do to reach people. And I think the same thing still happens today. I think many times we're looking for tangible gain instead of eternal gain. And our worldly desires inside the church oppose the work of Jesus Christ. I believe that we are either actively working with Jesus to reconcile heaven and earth, men and women, boys and girls who are far apart from God and bring them into a relationship with Jesus, or we're actively working in opposition of that and we're standing in the way of what he wants to do. I don't think there's any other option. We're either working with Jesus in his mission or we're standing in opposition. But not only did Jesus talk about the cost here, look down in verse 24, he also talked about the cross. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, when Jesus talked about the cross here, the cross was not yet a neutered religious symbol like it is today. When these people heard the word cross, they don't, like us, think of Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins, coming back to life, and it being a beacon of hope. You know, they didn't have cross necklaces or crosses engraved on their Bibles or dozens of crosses all littered across their homes. Um, the cross at this time was the primary execution symbol and system of the Roman Empire. When people heard cross, they immediately shuddered. It was a form of brutal humiliation and torture. 
If we were going to put it in modern terms, it would be like Jesus standing up today and telling his followers to deny themselves and every day be beheaded by ISIS. It had that kind of weight to it in the first century world. Um, many times, you know, we have cross bumper stickers or necklaces, and they really have more in common with an electric chair or a lethal injection needle than it really does a crisp, clean Sunday outfit. And so why did Jesus use such graphic terms here? I think because death is real, and Jesus was being real and realistic about the cost in following him. We may not like it or like death or like talking about it or look forward to it, but we cannot ignore it. If we do, we end up wasting our lives. We're here for a limited window. C.S. Lewis expounds upon this passage, and he says, This principle runs through all life from top to bottom. If you give up yourself, you will find your real self. If you lose yourself, you will save it. Um, submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. And God's asking us to lay down our dreams and our desires and our ambitions, not because he's a cruel God, but because he wants to resurrect in us better dreams and ambitions. When I was growing up my whole life, and you probably had something similar happen to you, people were always asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Grow up? And I'd say things like, I want to be a scientist, or I want to be a writer, or, you know, it would change week to week. It was always something new. But it was always based around this idea that it was what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I think most of us have grown up, but we've kept this desire or this way of thinking that what I want to do is the primary purpose for my life. Most of our dreams, even as adults, center around what we want instead of what God wants and what other people need. The Apostle Paul talks about this kind of this idea of taking up your cross or being a sacrifice in Romans 12.1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He, he calls this living sacrifices because there's not just one moment in your life where you say, okay, I'm dying to my dreams and ambitions and goals and I'm going to live for God's goals and dreams and ambitions. But it's something that has to keep happening because we'll carry our cross for a little while and then we'll say, eh, I don't like this and we'll throw it down and do what we want. Or we'll jump on the altar for a little while and then we'll say, oh, this is unpleasant and we'll do what we want. So we have to keep going back to it. We're living sacrifices Sacrifice that has to keep going back to the altar, keep dying to what we want, to do what Jesus wants. We have to keep killing our desires so that we can live for Christ's desires. And so Jesus is, says here very plainly, he says, to follow me is an exercise in denying yourself, denying what you want in favor of what I want. And I can uh, just, you know, big surprise here, but as Americans, we're not very big fans of denying ourselves. We're really big fans of pleasing ourselves, right? Um, we're fans of treat yourself. You deserve it. You know, you put up that meme, you're like, you've had a rough day, you deserve it. Go ahead and purchase that, that purse or go ahead and purchase that, um, you know, that movie series that you want. And that's kind of like the, the mantra for our American life. But the path of Jesus is one of purpose and meaning, but it is not one that is comfortable or safe or that will dazzle your pleasures. And Jesus is very honest about that. But ultimately, he says, okay, so what would be worth paying this much? That this has this kind of cost and you have to deny your dreams. Why is this worthwhile? And he presents in verse 28 the whole point of uh, why this is worth the sacrifice. And he calls it the kingdom. 
In verse 28, he says, some of you standing here will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And this is something of a strange verse in some scholars debate, like, what exactly is he talking about in this verse? Because as the um, Jewish disciples of his day are hearing this, they're thinking, oh, some of us are going to live to see Jesus defeat the Roman Empire and rule in Israel and make us the center of the world again. Uh, but of course, Jesus was not a physical Messiah who, uh, or a, he was not a Messiah who was going to rule a physical kingdom in Israel after supernaturally defeating Israel's enemies, but he came to be a worldwide Messiah, uh, a spiritual Messiah for all people. And when Jesus was talking about his kingdom, he wasn't talking about overthrowing Rome, at least not in the physical sense. He was ultimately talking about overthrowing hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls as they encounter him and have a relationship with him. When Jesus was arrested in John 18, 36, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. What Jesus preached about when he preached about a kingdom was he was preaching about a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God comes to earth when more hearts and minds um, come under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. When more people encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and surrender and become his followers and they begin to set right what's been broken in our world. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is the kingdom isn't something far off that you might not live to see. The kingdom is right now. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. But this is all part of the plan to build the kingdom. All this sacrifice is worth it because of how beautiful, how meaningful, how costly the kingdom is. And Dallas Willard says the kingdom of heaven is right here. This is what Jesus always preached, the immediate availability of the kingdom of God now. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but Jesus' kingdom transforms this world. The kingdom of Jesus is not built through angry Facebook posts or protesting in the street or even government-issued laws. The kingdom of Jesus is built one person at a time as they encounter Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel, and he changes them and changes their desire from the inside out. And so what is the gospel? Gospel simply means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And all of us, at some point in our lives, have taken destructive actions. We've done things, said things, thought things that have either hurt ourselves or hurt other people. And the Bible calls these destructive actions sin. Sin always, always ultimately hurts relationships, relationships with other people and relationships with God. Um, our sin ruined God's good world. And when we look out and we say, man, this world's messed up, our sin has been a part of what's damaged this world. And we deserved ultimately to be punished for our sins. Because of our sins, we damaged the beautiful world that God had made. But God, instead of punishing us, came to earth in the form of a man, the man Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross and died for our sins so that he could trade his right relationship, his right standing with God for our sins to all who believe on his name. And so everyone who believes on the name of Jesus Christ by faith can have a right standing with God. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's freely given to all who would believe. It's a free gift. But at the same time, even though the gospel costs nothing, the gospel ends up demanding everything. It's like if you get a Fitbit for a present. I got a Fitbit on my wrist here. Um, if you get that as a present, you didn't pay any money for it. It was free. You open it up and you take it. But if you're really going to receive that and wear it, it's going to end up being pretty demanding. It didn't cost you any money. It was free, but there's going to end up being a lot of demands. Because when I sit down, 
this thing starts chirping at me and beeping at me. And it's like, get off your butt and get moving, Alex. Go to the gym. Actually, don't sit down all day. Put some action into your life. In order to, uh, we can't earn the gift. The gift was freely given. But the consummation of the gift will see action in use. God didn't save us. Jesus didn't save us to be comfortable, safe, and financially secure. He saved us so we could join him in his mission of reconciliation, reconciling men and women, boys and girls, people far apart from God with himself through the good news of Jesus Christ. The Christian life isn't easy because the Christian life is about sacrificing everything and anything for the sake of the gospel. So I promise you, as we come to a close, this world does not shake when powerful men speak. Sometimes they like to think it does. This world does not shake when the wealthy make some statement. Sometimes the wealthy think they're powerful. This world does not shake with the threat of bombs or weapons. I believe that the world fundamentally shakes. Things change when the followers of Jesus Christ live sacrificially and build his kingdom by sharing the gospel.